Roll on, thou deep and dark blue ocean, roll. Ten thousand fleets sweep over thee in vain. Man marks the earth will ruin his control. Stops with the shore. Lord Byron. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank you all for joining me this week and listening. Uh, if this is your first time, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, thank you for returning. And uh, I want to thank you all uh, specifically because um, I checked earlier this week and we have officially broken uh, the 2,000 downloads. Um, and that's just via the RSS feed, which is you know my web or my um, my host for the podcast, and it it auto uploads my show to a number of different websites um so 2000 downloads that's a that's a thousand more than i had after the first year the first year i had essentially a thousand like right on the money a little little bit more than that uh so i've already doubled it up in just a couple of months uh well uh well i guess eight months almost a little under eight months for year two uh and i haven't checked with my youtube listings but um I guess I could be at 3,000, but uh, YouTube's a little bit different animal, and I know I was uploading stuff there um, kind of off and on, and I'm just now starting to get to the point where it's uploaded at the same time. But again, I'm really pleased with how much the show has grown in such a short amount of time. Um, I thought I would struggle to get to 1,000, honestly, uh, for at least a year or two, but Obviously, the first year was great, and then this year we're already off to an even better start. So, thank you all for that. Uh, so, let's go ahead and uh, just go ahead and get into the meat of this topic, or this week's show. Uh, and after leaving Asia, we're going to south to talk about uh, the continent of Australia and the islands of Melanesia. Uh and it will probably take us, I think this might be a two-week split, um, give or take, maybe three, we'll see. Um, now, I'm specifically highlighting Australian Melanesia because Micronesia and Polynesia have yet to be populated by man. Or at least there is no evidence to suggest that they have been. Um, I suppose it is possible that uh, humans or possibly Denisovans or, you know, some other hominid had reached those areas just in small numbers and they couldn't live there long enough to really make an impact on an island's archaeological record. But again, there is no evidence to suggest anything like that. Um, oh, before that, though, I did have one piece of feedback about the last episode. And one of our listeners asked if there were not any terms to describe uh, kind of the material culture of Siberia. And yes, there was one, and I meant to bring it up in passing, but I forgot when I got distracted about uh, some other things. And this group is known as the Sumnagan. Now, I wasn't able to find out much about them in English, and my Russian is non-existent, essentially, so... um, I did find one article in English by a Sergei Slobodin, 
And his article was interesting, but was mainly focused on earlier periods of Siberian uh, inhabitation, uh, like Paleolithic, me, me, you know, Mesolithic. So um, it was kind of outside our period we're focusing on. So basically the main thing I learned about the Sumnagan is that they existed. Uh, they were very mobile and they had a very large range. And they could have emerged around 8,500 BC, possibly later, and they lasted to around 5,000 or 4,500 BC. But I, I plan on talking more about them next season because most of what I could find about the Samnagan was, you know, how they were eventually replaced. Uh, there's not a whole lot that stands out about them aside from the name. Um, but yeah, that's why I didn't mention them very much. I I, I had to, I had a note to mention the name, but I just I skipped it or just got distracted by some other stuff I was rambling about. Um, so please look forward to that area next season. Now back to Melanesia. Now, if you're not aware, Melanesia is usually categorized as including New Guinea and all of the islands to its east up to Fiji. Uh, now the term Melanesia came into use in English from uh, the Frenchman Jules Dumont d'Herville. Uh, he was a French uh, Navy officer slash explorer uh, and he had coined the term in the early 1800s. Um, and it's based on Greek however. Uh, Greek meaning the Black Islands. Now, prior to that, all of the islands of the Pacific were kind of referred to as Polynesia since around the middle 1700s. Although originally a French term, but again made from Greek meaning many islands. It was the Enlightenment. Greek and Latin were very popular. And uh, I'll go ahead and just say Micronesia was coined at the same time as Melanesia by the same person. It means the small islands. Though again, Polynesia and Melanesia show no signs of human habitation until well past this season. So we'll get to them in the future. As for Melanesia, it doesn't appear that all the islands associated with the region are inhabited just yet either. New Guinea is, uh, as well as the uh, Bismarck Archipelago to kind of the north uh, east of New Guinea. And you also have the Solomon Islands and... Um, uh, yeah, so the Solomon Islands are also occupied. Although I couldn't find direct confirmation if it was all of the Solomon Islands or just a few. Um, but at least at least some of them were. People were in the in the chain. Now Fiji and New Caledonia won't be occupied until later. Um, now, the reason that these regions were divided is due to a couple of factors. Uh, first, uh, Europeans were beginning to understand that the Pacific Islands were a massive area and contained a vast array of people with different cultures, beliefs, uh, you know, ways of living, all that kind of stuff. And, of course, uh, at the time... Uh, 
there was a very popular form of uh, scientific racism, and I am air quoting extra hard over the word scientific there. Um, but it was an extremely popular uh, theory at the time. And it was thought that Melanesia and Australia were colonized by a black race, and that Polynesia and Micronesia were colonized by a yellow race. And of course, as you can probably guess, and as we've already probably seen a little bit, and will continue to see, the truth is far, far more complicated. Um, though, um, you know, the most basic understanding of Melanesian Australia, yes, the Aboriginal people there are are very dark skinned. They they can tend they can be black, they can be brown, um, though they do have some mutations that make them unique from say um, black or brown people from Africa. Uh, one of those mutations is they can have blonde hair, believe it or not. Uh, it's a very striking uh, mutation. Um, and I don't know if I've discussed it, but there's a number of factors that kind of play into skin coloration, pigmentation. Uh, part of that is environmental, uh, due to, you know, exposure to direct sunlight and the tropics and the subtropics, which is, you know, right in line with, um, the region we're talking about. So, uh, darker skin would make sense, but uh, we'll we'll talk about that a little more, a little bit more later. Now, of course, as humans had migrated into the region, um, the sea levels were much lower. Uh, New Guinea and Australia were connected as a single landmass known as Sahul. At least that's the term that archaeologists use for it. And I tried as hard as I could, but I couldn't find any information, or I shouldn't say I should find. I couldn't find really any solid information on the etymology of that name. Um, it apparently came from some kind of early Dutch maps of the region, uh, and they made note of like a very large sandbar between New Guinea and Australia which they called either Sahul or Sahol. And the origin of this name is is debated. But um, the explanation I think that makes the most sense is that it comes from the Arabic Sahil, uh, or Sahil, uh, which means coast. Arabic, Arabic is a very vital trade language in uh, the region, especially around Malay and um, Borneo, uh, which is you know where the Dutch were very concerned uh, and concentrated in, uh, so it's very possible you know they were, you know, in the area. They had made note of that and hey, like what's that place called? And the Arabs just called it coaster. You know, they tried to explain what it was, and the Arabics, Arabic speakers translated it as coast. Um. And of course, you know, the actual number of native Arabs was probably limited in the region. So you have, you know, uh, you know, Borneans or Malaysians, uh, you know, learning Arab from Arabic traders. And then 
them communicating with Dutch, who also don't speak Arabic natively, um, you know, there's a good chance that there was a very prolonged, profound game of telephone going on, I guess for lack of a better explanation. All right, let's see. Ah, uh, yes, and I should also point out that this name isn't universally used. Uh, some people use Meganesia, um, or the Great Island. Others use Papua Land or Greater Australia. It kind of depends on what your, um, I guess, discipline, your academic discipline is. Uh, I know archaeologists, again, they tend to use uh, Sahul. I think... Um, um, biologists tend to use um, meganesia because you know there's a lot of you know animal and plant life that is very similar to each other uh, across that kind of super region and it is kind of separated uh, from uh, Sundaland which was the big supercontinent that Southeast Asia uh, the Malay Peninsula were a part of. There is a big divide in the type of animal and plant lives in those two regions across them. So that shows that they were never really connected, or at least uh, they haven't been connected for a far longer period of time. Now, at 8000 BC, New Guinea and Australia are no longer connected via a, you know an overland bridge, but the sea levels are still a bit lower. Uh, so they have more land uh, kind of by the end of the season, though they will still have, you know, mostly their modern boundaries. That said, interactions between the two groups of descendants of the first Sahulians, I guess uh, you should call them, had mostly stopped, even before the land bridge completely closed. Um, they become genetic, you know, distinct genetic groups no later than 50,000 years ago. So that's like either right as they get to Sahul or, you know, around 10,000 years after. Uh, with, you know, modern Aboriginal Papuans and Australians being as diverse from each other as someone from East Asia is, uh, as, you know, or, yeah, they're as diverse from each other as an East Asian is uh, as someone who is of European descent. Uh, so there's a there's a very big uh, genetic divide, uh, and that shows up again in, in language as well, uh, and we'll get into that shortly. But uh, oh, there was another thing I wanted to bring up, and that was the etymology of uh, New Guinea. Um, now. Uh, Part of playing into the type, you know, the naming of Melanesia, um, the term, as far as I know, was coined by a Spanish explorer, and I forget which one, uh, but he thought that the people living on uh, New Guinea resembled a people that he saw that lived along the Guinea coast of Africa. Uh, and, uh, so 
yeah, he saw it and he thought this was New Guinea. So he he thought that you know the people of Africa and the people of Melanesia looked very similar. Uh, and this is again before uh, the, the kind of French um, black island name of Melanesia came into use. So there was already even before the scientific uh, racist. Uh, name or explanation of the name and the division of um, the Pacific Islands uh, came about. This is already something that was just a natural observation that some of the Europeans made or what they thought was a natural observation. Ah, but uh, that is something that we will discuss again later when we get to the Europeans uh, coming into this region, but uh, that's still a ways away, of course. Now, um, once the native Papuans, uh, or I guess the descendants of the first Sahulians, got to the region, uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that these groups kind of stayed in the smaller regions. Um they would stick to uh, kind of highland areas or maybe isolated lowland areas uh, all around the coast of New Guinea. Uh, there's a lot of mountains there. Uh, and, you know, essentially they became very sedentary. They didn't move around nearly as much as other hunter-gatherers. Uh, and this is something that's... Uh, that's um, repeated on Australia as well, although the Australians, they have some other stuff going on that we'll discuss in a little bit more detail uh, probably next week. Uh, but the, the, I guess the Aboriginal Papuans, they kind of practice a, a very large-scale form of uh, agriculture or, or gardening. They, um, they don't they don't really plant crops along uh, rivers or river valleys or anything like that, at least not in the sense that you'd be seeing in places like, um, you know, uh, the Tigris and Euphrates or along the Yellow River in China. But they do have a lot of areas where they kind of, um, they'll almost do like a very large scale of rotation between, um, clearing out uh, certain plants to help other plants grow or they'll let animals kind of take over certain areas and only hunt them uh, in others so they kind of like almost make a kind of a pattern or a large-scale rotation or seasonal um, use of lands that they kind of keep a very tight grip on um with the exception of one major crop, and this is one that they deliberately, apparently deliberately, go out of their way to kind of um, cause to spread and to grow um, much more traditionally into uh, agriculture. Uh, try to, it's something that they actually plant and hope grows a lot more like wheat and things like that. And that, of course, is sugar. Uh, sugar is a very vital uh, crop in a lot of uh, commercial uh, 
areas in the future, uh, but it is something that's very popular even at this early stage. And it is debated exactly when they domesticate um, sugar. Uh, there are some that claim this is as early as uh, 6,000 BC. And then there are others that say it's not really domesticated until, you know, sometime in the next 2,000 years after that. But this is a crop that, you know, you have a domestic strain for, whereas other crops or wild plants that these pop ones are kind of tending or gardening for, those plants remain wild. There's not a large amount of uh, human selection of what is allowed to reproduce and what isn't. And there are a number of crops that these early uh, Papuans or Melanesians are kind of uh, interacting with that do eventually become uh, domesticated strains, breadfruits, uh, I believe uh, there are, I think bananas are in this region. If it's not bananas specifically, it's a type of plantain. Um, but there are, there are a number of things that will eventually um, take over once um, traditional, like, agriculture or controlled agriculture spread instead of this kind of um, almost laissez-faire uh, stewardship uh, of the land that the aboriginal uh, Papuans or Melanesians are practicing. Uh, and that is something that we will kind of keep track of you know, as time goes on. Um, now, we do have um, other peoples that will be moving into this region from, um, you know, back to the west, uh, Malaysia, um, Taiwan. We'll have uh, people moving out into this region as well. Now, this isn't um, quite as uh, devastating to the uh, Papuan population as, you know, later uh, migrants to the region will be, um, mainly because there isn't quite this kind of backlog of uh, communicable diseases uh, from things like animal handling and, uh, you know, city life um, that you might uh, expect to come about. Uh, but there probably is a little bit of that um, when they first move in. But that's all stuff that'll happen in the next season. Um, for now, though, the Papuans appear to, again, uh, make these smaller, tight-knit, sedentary societies where they are hunting and gathering, uh, but they kind of form their own, um, their own kind of semi-isolated communities. You might trade with a neighbor or two, but you would never go really that far past your next neighbor over. You wouldn't go, say, three or four neighbors down. Um, at least that's what DNA evidence we have found shows us for this time period of native uh, or aboriginal Papuans. Um, and one thing you can see with that is that 
it also shows up in languages as well. Um, there are, I believe, around 900 languages that are classified as Papuan. Uh, and that is a geographic term. That is not a genetic family. Um, like, uh, say, you know, um, Chinese is. Uh, it's not a a thing like, um, say, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the uh, Native American language families. Um I'm drawing a blank, excuse me. So th this is a language family that is strictly made up of, again, over 900 or close to 900 languages that are strictly spoken on the island of New Guinea or one of their very close neighboring islands. So these people are not um, all related. Some are, but most are not related to each other. And in terms of, um, I believe, like native population, there's about 15 million Papuans. And they share, again, around 900 languages. Um, and there are some people who argue it's even more than that. I think, um, I think the, the number is between like um, 850 and 1100. Uh, but most, most people... I saw where, you know, they use the 900 number as their claim. So, um, obviously some are much more widely spoken than others, but there is a strong kind of regional, uh, I guess, regional subgroups where you do see more uh, relatedness to neighbors as opposed to, you know, people on the other side of the island. And part of that is, you know, people moving into the region later. But there's a lot of stuff that is, as far as we can tell, native, homegrown, New Guinean, Papuan, whatever you want to call it, languages. And this is also something we'll see in Australia. Um, there are a lot of, um, a lot of different uh, languages for uh, the various Aboriginal groups on Australia. So. Um, for the Papuans, um, you can kind of see, um, I guess, it, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, um, there are some larger regional groups and then there are you know ones that have um uh, i guess not subfamilies because again they're not necessarily related to each other but you've got uh you what you'll typically see on a language map of um new guinean or papuan languages is that there are larger families and then you'll see you know maybe four or five smaller uh, languages around them. And there's some overlap in terms of vocabulary uh, for certain things, but their, you know, their subject, object, verb um, ordering might be different. Uh, some languages may use neutral gender. Some may use, um, 
you know, more than two genders. Some may not use gender at all, you know, that kind of thing. And those are just examples. That's not anything specific, but uh, you'll you'll have, uh, I guess it's probably one, two, three, four, probably four main groups uh, and then a couple of smaller uh regional i guess clusters and again those groups might not even be all that much related to each other at least in terms of the genetic kind of makeup of their speakers and part of that is due to these later migrations that come in Um, but that's all kind of stuff that we'll talk about in the future Um, so it's for these future migrants into the region that I'm not going to try to dive too much into um, the religion of these peoples because um, obviously they've practiced traditional faiths and there are still a large number that practice traditional faiths, but almost all of those traditional faiths have had some type of influence from either um, uh, Christianity, Buddhism, uh, some Hinduism even, as well as um, uh, Muslim or Islamic uh, traders that are moving into and out of the region. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's kind of uh, that's kind of what we're dealing with, or what we know the Papuans uh, are kind of living like at this time frame. Um, they're relatively isolated. They may have contacts with some groups kind of towards the, the northeast of Australia. Um, but for whatever reason, they haven't really kept up with um, island hopping to the east after they get to the Solomons. Uh, why that is, I'm not sure. I'm assuming it has to do with the rising kind of ocean levels or sea levels. Uh and when it picks back up, it's probably due to them having to deal with a number of um, migrants uh, moving into the area from the west. Um, again, Malaysia, uh, Taiwan, that type of area. Uh, but they are living a very different type of hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Very sedentary, very isolated, again, uh, which is not something you see. Um, from what we can tell, it's still fairly egalitarian. Uh, obviously, this may change from group to group. Some groups might value gender a little more than others. Some probably don't care about, which isn't all that unusual um, for you know hunter-gatherer groups. You're not building up a lot of wealth. You're not necessarily passing it on. Uh, the same way you do for other sedentary societies um, because they're probably not hoarding wealth. They're, what they're growing and what they're keeping is just food. They probably don't have you know, non-perishable wealth that they pass on aside from some small like uh, art pieces or maybe tools, things like that. Um, and I haven't gone into it, but I do need to discuss possible types of tribal warfare uh, and this is something that's not just going to affect Papuans this is you know probably people all over um, and it may not be fair to call it warfare it may be better to call it something else but um, 
that's something I'll have to think about um, because I know I'm going to be doing another domestication episode or two on plant, plants and animals. And then, of course, we'll be doing a kind of a urbanization episode. There probably needs to be one on conflict of humans as well. Because I've I've kind of skimmed over that I know like I I, I make a, I make the allowance that there's definitely violence between groups I don't think it's quite as bad as we might think just because there's not necessarily as much of a um, need at least in terms of resources or land per se uh, but that is kind of a simplistic view because there are other factors that would drive conflict between groups. And that is something that maybe deserves its own episode. Um, but yeah, I'd, I would like to get a little bit more in-depth on some of these Papuan groups. But again, we know that they have a lot of influence, even if they're not intermarrying with a lot of the migrants that are going to be coming into the region. Um, even if there's not a lot of genetic influence, there's definitely a lot of cultural or you know, material influence. Uh, influence that's put on them so yeah I think I'm going to hold off I think next week's episode where we talk about the Australian Aboriginals we'll have a lot more um, specifics to talk about for things like religion Uh, and we'll also talk about um, some of the mysteries that still surround uh, the Aboriginal people and their I guess their occupation of the continent and how they spread and um, lived once they were there. But yeah, um, I think this is a decently solid episode. Um, I know it was kind of tied in with a lot of modern etymology stuff and, you know, some modern critiques of history and that kind of thing. I I should say that despite the origins of the kind of the Melanesian, um, name with kind of that, again, that pseudoscientific racism, um, there is a kind of a push from a lot of the Melanesian peoples or Papuans just as as a general kind of thing that they are, you know, that they are adopting it because it is a kind of a kind of a, a almost like a rallying point to allow them to have a little bit more uh, continuity with each other and a little bit more of a community. Uh, to kind of help them maybe try to establish their own uh, kind of group identity. It is something that you're seeing. Um, They're all, of course, still proud of their individual tribal, you know, backgrounds and genetic makeups and languages. But, you know, there there is kind of a, a drive at some level to kind of have this uh, Melanesian identity be at least equal to or maybe slightly below their tribal identities just to allow them to have a better um, relations with their neighbors as well as help kind of uh, establish kind of a world identity or something that the rest of the world can look at and as a group kind of appreciate and respect about them as it's very difficult for, you know, uh, again, there's only about 15 million people on New Guinea that are indigenous Papuans. Um, it's kind of hard for, you know, 
a group of say a thousand of one tribe to get a lot of international recognition uh, it's a lot easier for 15 million people to get recognition uh, so there's a lot of I guess pooling of resources might be the best way to describe uh, the Melanesian identity it's something that they're using to kind of help each other uh, help themselves and help each other kind of using that identity as a kind of a flag to get uh, recognition for all of them I guess uh, kind of a sink or swim together type uh, identity um, but yeah um, so uh, that's a good place to call it for this week I think um, my audio levels are spiking a little I'm going to turn down the volume for this but if it's a little too loud I do apologize um, if you have any questions or feedback please let me know uh, you can email me at war at revpod at gmail.com you can also uh, direct message me on twitter if you follow me I can follow you back and then of course you can comment on any of my youtube videos um, and I'll be glad to respond there uh, you can respond on any episode. I will get a notification about it. I will respond. It doesn't have to be on this episode. It could be on any episode you like. Uh, I am always looking for some feedback. Um, thank you all again for getting me past the 2000 already this year. Um, so uh, I'm looking forward to a lot of growth. I'm looking forward to seeing where we end up after after year two, I guess. Uh, we still got a few months left, though. Um, and, yeah, so uh, join me next week. We'll be finishing up probably again with uh, talk about Australia. And then we'll be moving to Europe. Um, and then we'll be there for a couple of weeks, and then we'll move on to the Americas. And then we'll jump forward to season four and our, our next kind of time period. So I hope you're looking forward to it. I know I'm excited for that, and I hope you are as well. But uh, until then, thank you all. I hope you have a good rest of your day and a good rest of your week. Thank you. Goodbye.